We're going to continue on where we were last week talking about Godonomics. What does God have to say about money and finances and whatnot? And last week, we began to look at the scriptures and kind of see what is the motivation behind giving. It's like, why do we do this and why are we talking about it? Well, the number one reason that we are talking about this right now is, as I say every week, I don't care what the topic is, we need to know what God says on it, on the subject. And so we began looking at these. You're always running late, aren't you? Oh, okay. It's all Jared's fault, right? They're cousins, if you didn't know. You'd think they were brother and sister, but anyway. But we want to know what God says on the subject. We want to know what God says on every subject. The problem we have today is we have a lot of opinions not grounded in anything factual. When it comes to the idea of the church and, and what we call religion, and we understand a religion is a system of worship where we talk about having a relationship with Christ. There is a difference there, um, but technically we are a religion. But that it's not just a system of do's and don'ts. It's what is the heart of God on any matter? When it comes to the idea of going to heaven and salvation, what is the heart of God on this matter? We were discussing this this morning because we've had different folks that have different opinions around the world. You go and ask somebody, how do you get to heaven? I mean, and they'll say, well, you'd be a good person or you do good things. And that would be a correct answer if it was grounded in something that was foundational. What do we base that on? Our opinion. Who gets to define what is good? If there is no good God, there is no standard of good. So it's just a matter of opinion. So yeah, you can go and do good things, but that doesn't make you right with God. There's a reason that in Matthew where Jesus said, someone on that, that final day will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name and that in your name. He'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. You see, that's where the personal relationship side comes in, is knowing God. Not knowing about God. We know a lot about God. We know a lot about God in this country. You can't ask anybody about God. They can state some facts. Well, this is who God is and all of that. But knowing him, it's a whole nother thing. That's where Jesus talked about in John 3, that we must be born again. That's the knowing God, is that we believe in our heart that God raised him from the, from the dead, and that we can be saved because of that. That's knowing God. Putting your faith, hope, and trust in him is be, as a result of knowing God. We wouldn't do that any other way. If you ever knew somebody that you couldn't depend on, what do you know about them? You can't depend on them, right? So you wouldn't. Well, that's where the difference is, is that because we know God, we can depend on him. And when we talk about finances, we know that we can depend on him. So we talked about a few different things. Number one, when it comes to giving, is that we have the tithe. The tithe is the first 10%. Okay? It was in the Old Testament. It's also called the first fruits. They are one in the same. The first fruits is the principle that we bring the very first and best. And the tithe is the percentage, if you will. Tithe, 10, always means testing in the Bible. In Malachi, we see, test me in this and see if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing on you that you don't have room enough to receive it. Is there a commandment in the New Testament that New Testament believers should tithe today? No, there is not. What does that mean to you? That means you don't have to do this. We don't have to. We have the freedom to choose. But is there an underlying principle that goes behind this? That God says, if you do this, there's a blessing that goes with it. Absolutely there is. This, as I've said before, has trickled into the world as well. Because now I'm starting to hear some of these business leaders that talk about how they pay a tithe. And ever since they begin doing this, they pay it to an organization. They have noticed increase in sales, increase in productivity, increase in profitability. Why is that? Because these are godly principles laid out. Not commandments. They were commandments to the Jews. They had to do it. That's how they took care of things. So we have a choice. From there, we have an offering. The tithe, according to God, belongs to him, but the offering, that is something that we freely and willingly give. 
And when we do it, we do it with what? A grateful heart. And we went through some of this stuff that we have to be willing. And it's from a spirit of generosity that we do it. And sometimes it is sacrificial. What do we see with the, the woman with the two mice? Jesus, there's people at the temple giving tons and tons of money. And she comes in and gives two equivalent of less than pennies. And Jesus is like, this woman here has given more than everybody else. Because it was sacrificial and that she did it. She gave because she loved God and wanted to bless him and wanted to keep the commandments. So she did it. It's not the amount. If you're a millionaire for you to put 20 bucks in the offering, no big deal. But if you're making 150 bucks a week, $20 is a lot of money. So it's um, not the amount, but it's the, um, the percentage. It's, it's what we do with it. It's advantageous to us. And through that, there are rewards from God for it, right? He meets our needs. He takes care of us. But we're also thankful and we're joyful when we do it. And if you remember last week, we began to look at the Sabbath of what it was. Because the principle behind the Sabbath is the same principle in the, anything of God, really, but especially in giving. So what was the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the seventh day which would be Friday night to Saturday night for the Jews. We do not recognize the Sabbath here. The Sabbath is not on Sunday. It has never been changed according to God. It has been changed according to the church, but it has never been changed according to God. We don't recognize the Sabbath because we are not Jewish. We are Gentiles. It was the sign of the Mosaic Covenant given to the Jewish people that they kept it. But in that, they were not allowed to do any work at all. So they couldn't go out there, they couldn't go into the marketplace and buy and sell goods, they couldn't go and harvest crops, they couldn't do anything. And so all they could do is be reliant upon God to take care of them. You had the Sabbath weekly, then you had the Sabbath yearly where they had to take a, land, a year off to allow the land to rest and then trust God that God was going to allow them to have enough in the sixth year to carry them through and to start again in the eighth year to start all over. Imagine, if you will, if God came to you and you're living paycheck to paycheck and God said, hey, I want you to take the next year off and just trust me. That would be hard to do. I don't care who you are. That would be difficult to do because God does use our jobs, our businesses, our farms as a means to provide for us. But if he told us to do it, we'd all be like, nah, maybe, maybe next year, God, get back to me in 2020. All right. But but what were they supposed to do? They're supposed to do it. And they didn't. And then, of course, you have the Jubilee year, which is another special type of Sabbath, where it was a year where everything was set back to the way it was. It was this big celebration. They also had feast day Sabbaths where they were doing nothing. The bottom line is this. They had no choice but to rely on God. Because what does it say? It says that Jesus was saying, like, hopefully for you, that when that time comes, that it's not on the Sabbath, because then you would have to flee. And a good Jewish person would not flee on the Sabbath. They would stand there and trust God to take care of them. You see, that Sabbath principle goes into our finances. As we trust God, that He meets our needs. It makes no sense from a worldly standpoint that we go and we give money away because we might need that. Sometimes we do need it. There are churches that will just hoard hundreds of thousands of dollars because well, what if something happens? I'm not saying we shouldn't have savings account. In fact, and you guys will see this here in a couple weeks, I'm a firm believer in savings account. And, and for us, when I set the budget every year, I want six months finances set aside in savings. That way, if something happens, we've got a nest egg to fall on. But aside from that, I want to put that money to work. I want to use it for the kingdom. Don't want to just waste it, but I want to use it. Same personally. I want to have money put away for a rainy day. 
and that's just his term. A rainy day doesn't mean that you're bored and you want to go on vacation. A rainy day is because, okay, the rain's coming, we better, we better buckle down here. But I want to be able to personally weather any kind of storm and knowing that God is going to take care of me. You see, when it comes to the things of the world, they are the antithesis to the things of God and vice versa. So when we give, it makes no sense. But we do it out of all those things. We've got to be willing and a heart of generosity, not just giving to the church. You realize it takes a willingness to help those that are not as fortunate as you are? That maybe God's provided for you and you have the ability to meet a need for you to go and do it? And more so, to not make a big deal out of it? To not shout it from the rooftops, look at me, I paid so-and-so's rent. That's what the Pharisees did. They were called hypocrites by Jesus because they loved the attention of men and they got their reward. But when we do it from a heart of God is we do it because we love God and because we love God, we love people. So what is our motivation when it comes to giving? It is always love. Let's look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Starting in verse 1, it says, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clinging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What is Paul talking about here? This is sandwiched in between two chapters talking about the gifts of the Spirit. The Corinthian church were kind of wacky. We joke around and say it was the first church in California because it's full of fruits and nuts, okay? The granola belt. I could do this all day. But he's in here, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, the, the prophesying, the speaking in tongues, the interpretation of tongues, the laying on of hands, all of these things that was going on there. But he's bringing some correction in the practice of it. And so he starts that off. Then he's got this chapter on love. And then he gets over here to this part. The part kind of exemplifying a little bit more on the gifts. It's kind of sandwiched in there. But what is he saying here? I can do all of these things by the Spirit of God. But if I don't have love for the people of God, it does me no good. So let's define our terms. What is love? Love is not some feeling. Okay? Just because you meet somebody and you get butterflies in your stomach, that is not the love of God. I know that's hard to believe, right? I have to tell young people, especially newlyweds, when they're getting ready to get married, I, this is why I sit down with them. I said, you know those feelings you have for one another? Those are going to change one of these days. And then you've got to put up with them the rest of your life. Be prepared. Have you met her mother yet? Because she ain't going anywhere. And she's going to be very crucial to your life. Yeah, the feelings get better, don't they? I mean, you think about it. Think about young people in love. Oh, that person's so funny. They're so beautiful. They have such a kind heart. And then after they get married and they work, wake up with their hair a mess and morning breath, and, and maybe they're not a morning person and you are, which means they're grumpy when they get up. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff. Maybe they're a real clean freak and you're not. You learn all sorts of stuff. You'll learn what love is. Love is putting up with you when you don't deserve it. Thank God my wife loves me. She'd have been gone a long time ago. You see, God didn't just love us out of this emotional experience. He chose to love us. He first chose us while we were still sinners. That's the whole for God so loved the world. You see, before Adam and Eve were created, he knew they would fall, and yet he chose to create them anyway. 
Why did he do that? Well, there is no greater expression of love than a man to lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. See, Jesus laying his life down for mankind is the ultimate expression of love. He gave willingly, generously, and sacrificially. He gave for us. You see, this love is the motivation. Does love simply allow somebody to continue to do whatever they want, even though it damages them? No. Love will speak up. We've got to confuse in our world today. They say, well, we just should love everybody, so we shouldn't judge them. If you can show me in the Bible the part where it says, don't judge, then we will all stop. But you've got to take it a step further. You have to stop all judgments right away, all of them. You cannot judge anything anymore. Therefore, if you go to McDonald's, and if you're torn between a number one and a number two, you can't make that judgment. I know it's tough. The better judgment would have been made, should we go to McDonald's? You see, we make a million judgments a day. But we've got it in this world. It's like, you just have to love me and embrace me the way I am. And the truth is, is that if I loved you and you're doing something that is destructive to your life, then I'm going to tell you because I love you. Because I'd have to hate you in order to not tell you. If I knew there was an oncoming truck and you were standing there in the middle of the road, is it loving to tell them to move or hateful? It's loving, right? If we're standing in a burning building and there's one way out and you know what it is, but they want to go a different route, is it loving or hateful to tell them? It's loving. You see, the path that leads to destruction is wide, but narrow is the way that brings eternal life. We love them, therefore we tell them these things. It's not your works that will send you to hell. It is the fact that you have no relationship with Jesus Christ. You have not received that free gift, that gift that was given out of love and bestowed upon us. It's out of that love for people and love for God that we do the things that we do. You may have noticed on the sign that we have out front, it says, Grace Church, loving God, loving people. Why does it say that? Because that's who we are. You see, we love God so much that we come and we want, to, we want to worship Him together and we want to serve Him and we want to be a family of believers that come together with one heart, mind, and purpose to worship God with all that we have and all that we are. And we love people so much that we are willingly to sacrifice our time and resources and maybe even our pride to lay it all out there on the line to go out there on a mission for God to tell them the truth of the gospel, that Jesus died for their sin, that He was buried, and three days later rose again. That takes love. Because what doesn't take love? To stay at home and hope somebody else does it. See, love is our motivation when it comes to the things of God. Love is our motivation when we give. Nothing else. There are abuses in the church today when it comes to the area of finances. I've heard one well-known preacher say that we don't give because we love God. We give because we want God to be able to bless us. And that's the mechanism of which he uses that is a partial truth, but it is incorrect. Love was always the motivation. It's always been the motivation because we love God that we give. Look at this. We read this last week, John chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why is this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. 
And he said that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Why did she do this? She came to Jesus and took this thing that cost her one year's salary and poured it on his feet. It was an anointing that was going on. There's a Jewish thing that's happening there, the anointing of the body and all of this other stuff because we're coming up on Passover, the Passover in which Jesus died. But because of this, she was willing to pour this out because she loved him. Why did she love him? Because her brother was sitting there with her that had been dead and Jesus brought back. See, she was so thankful for what Jesus had done that she was willing to give up anything. The problem is, is we don't feel like we've been saved from much. We feel like, yeah, we've kind of got together. I mean, we've done some dumb things. I mean, who hasn't? Everybody sins, right? We're not as bad as that guy down the road. I mean, yeah, I might lose my temper every now and then, but I'm not out driving drunk. I haven't killed anybody. But if God is the standard of good, that means that everything that doesn't meet that standard is evil. And according to the Bible, we're all evil. But it's through the grace of God that we are made righteous, brought up to that standard based off whose work? Jesus' not ours. So because of that, we have been saved from a lot. I remember when I was young. Here's my testimony. I grew up in church, was saved at a young age, I never really did anything bad. I never got arrested. I mean, I did some dumb stuff, but my testimony, pretty boring. And then you meet somebody that was like a crack addict, and they were prostituting themselves, and then God intervenes and miraculously saves them, and they have this supernatural experience. And I'm like, my testimony's so lame. I wish I was a crack addict. I said that. I was 17 years old. It's like, man, their testimony's so cool. I met a guy when we, we were out on church at a Hastings, and there was a guy that was a youth pastor at another church, and I met him. This guy was so strong out on drugs, he was living on the streets. And you'd never know to meet him, but that's the way it was. And he's giving his testimony at this citywide thing, and I'm like, man, your testimony's awesome. Mine is like, yeah, I came home late for curfew that one time, and that was bad. I don't think Jesus liked that. I mean, mine is pretty lame, but... We've all been saved by so much because God loved us while we were still sinners. So because of that, we need to recognize that. Why do we do what we do? It's because we love God. And it's because we love people. We give out of a worshipful uh, heart saying, Jesus, I love you and I am willing to do this. I'm willing to give anything to you, for you, if it will bring one person closer to you. We get caught up in semantics, but that's the bottom line, guys, is what are we doing to bring people to the kingdom of God? Sometimes we just want to write a check, but it takes more than that. That's a part of it. It takes money to fund these ministries. We, we fund ministries around the world. We've got a church in the Philippines. We've got these guys here that do all this work in El Salvador. They're impacting the entire nation, and they do it via Facebook. I mean, my goodness, because they, they, they're on the phone all the time. I mean, there's always messages. They get pictures all the time. Here's the work. The money that we give to them goes down there. It's building houses and feeding the poor, and people are coming to salvation every time they go down there. That's exciting. I don't know about you. I get pretty excited. Icky Huff was just back. They travel around the country, do a lot of homeless work, was telling me a little bit about the stuff that's going on. I mean, my goodness, they live in a bus. They are the Partridge family with a little less singing. 
but they're out there worshiping God everywhere they go, and, and they, they get a nail in their tire, like, okay, God, we're here. What do you want us to do? Every time. And most of us are just so aggravated we've got a nail in our tire that it keeps us from doing what we want to do, and they're like, hey, we're just going to take advantage of the time. We're going to go minister to somebody. I mean, that's awesome. There's so much good that is going on, and that's why we give. But when it comes to the area of giving, there is a principle that we have to understand. But it's not just in the area of giving. It's In fact, it's in all areas of life. It's called the law of sowing and reaping. Now, when I say law, what do I mean? There is a principle behind it that has been proven time and time again. You reap whatever you sow. Now, there have been people that have used that statement or have heard that statement that have no idea where that statement comes from. Those are not words that we typically use in our everyday language. Why? We don't have reapers anymore. We have combines. And thank God for it. I was talking to a farmer the other day who was telling me that the combines now no longer require you to be sitting in it. It does it all for you. What will they think of next? But there's a principle here. You reap, you bring in, based off of what you sow, what you have put out. So let's go to the scriptures. Let's start here today in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll start with verse 6. You're going to be familiar with this verse. It says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. Here we have sowing and reaping mentioned. Paul's talking here. He who sows sparingly gives very little will reap very little. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. But there were things there. They did it on purpose. They did it not of like I have to do it, but I want to do it. So they were a cheerful giver. And God's grace is poured upon it. So what is God's grace? It is God's unmerited favor. How many in here feel that they deserve God's salvation? The fact that they deserve that Jesus came down here and died the death that really belonged to us. We were given the death penalty because of sin, and Jesus came and said, hey, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. How many of us deserve that? Not a one. None of us deserve it. But yet, he's freely given it to us. I mean, you think about this, let's put this in a little natural standpoint, we just got through Christmas. How many of your children, whether this year or in years past, truly deserved the gifts that you gave them? I mean, see, the problem is, is we think we deserve something because we're alive. My kids are entitled to those gifts. But if we really broke it down, what, what have they done that have deserved that? Nothing, but why do we do it? Because we love them and we want to bless them. Why did God do this? Because he loves us and he wants to bless us. So we sow much or we reap much. We sow little, we will reap little. Let's look at this again. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, that's a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. 
For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. What do we see? Sowing and reaping again. What is this and what does it mean? There's never been a farmer on this earth that's ever went and planted corn, that would be sowing, that reaped anything but corn. They never walked out there one day as like, oh my goodness, I planted corn and I have watermelons. How did that happen? I mean, if you ask an evolutionist, that is very possible. In fact, that's how we got here. The goo to you via the zoo. But nothing, everything comes after its own kind. You plant corn, you get corn. Is it a one-to-one ratio? No. You plant one kernel of corn, you reap many, many kernels of corn. Well, hopefully if it's a good year. Same thing with beans or whatever else you want to plant. Whatever is put into the ground, that is what comes up. That's a natural thing that happens. So there's no way around it. No farmer has ever walked out there without sowing in the ground and said, I wonder when this stuff's going to start growing. You have to put something in to get something out. Now, do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that you have to put a dollar into the offering and hope to get $100 out this whole 30, 60, 100 fold. I'll talk about that a little bit today. We'll get into it a little bit more later. I'm also going to tell you that the concept of naming your seed is not a biblical concept. What do I mean? If you don't know what I mean, let me tell you. There are, it's, it's taught prevalently today, and most of the time this is not a malicious intent, so I want to make that very clear. But that if I'm believing God for something, then I need to sow money into the ministry and say, this is for my new car. Believing God is going to bless me with a new car. That is not a biblical principle. If you, th- th- there'll be those that tell you, like, well, if you're believing God for a new car, then you need to sow a car. That is not a biblical principle either. I want to make that very clear. Now, a lot of time this terminology gets thrown around loosely, but we want to stick with Scripture. All we care is what does God say? What we sow, we also reap. Did you realize that goes beyond finances? It goes way beyond finances. Everything we do is a principle of sowing and reaping. You know what the world calls it? Karma. Oh, it'll get back around to them. Don't you worry. They call that karma. What do we call it? Sowing and reaping. If you're nice to people, are people going to be nice to you in return? Most of the time they are. Not always. There are just some people that are angry for no apparent reason whatsoever. So this sowing and reaping thing goes beyond just the finances. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13 for a minute. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, On the same day that Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, the whole multitude stood on the shores. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. So what are we talking about? This is the parable of the four soils. It's seen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay? He went out and sowed, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came down and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so most people at this point are thinking, okay, why is Jesus giving a lesson in farming? He spoke in parables for a reason. What was the reason? Well, let's look at verse 10. And the disciples came to saying, Why do you speak to them in parables? Who is them? It was the Pharisees. They were the ones that were all around him. 
These are the people that, that did not accept Jesus as the Messiah because they were the religious and political leaders of the day, and they were in control. And it was very profitable. Does it sound like anything we hear today? The only way you can get rich in Congress is to be uh, crooked. One of our former presidents made that statement. He answered, said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. What is he talking about? These people were so hard-hearted that the Messiah is standing in front of them. He's done everything that was required of him as the Messiah to a Jewish man. There were four miracles that only the Messiah could do. He's done them all, that yet they still refuse to receive because they have a hard heart and they don't want to believe. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Remember, after Jesus raised him from the dead on the fourth day, that was one of those miracles. They wanted, we've got to get rid of him. He is evidence that this guy's the Messiah. And then when the, the stone was rolled away and Jesus walked out and the bodies disappeared, now Jesus is appearing, what did they do? They bribed the guards. Tell him you fell asleep. And the disciples came and took the body. You see, they were hard-hearted. So he speaks in parables because these guys don't want to hear. They don't want to see. They don't want to understand. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and for your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away that what was sown in his heart. Who is the wicked one? Satan, it's the enemy. You see, we have four soils, right? Who came and took the seed? It was always the same seed, right? In Luke 4, or Mark 4 and Luke 8, we see this split up. But the seed is always the word. So the word is sowed consistently. It's the same seed. It's what that seed does and is allowed to do that matters. The first one, does the seed ever sprout? Nope. Because why? The birds of the air come and snatch away. The wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. What does Luke chapter 8 say? Unless they should be saved. So we have the first group are people who hear the word, but they don't ever give their heart to Christ. They're not born again. So we have, um, what is this called? This is the wicked one called uh, wayside, the wayside soil. I know you guys love my handwriting. That's number one. These people are not born again. They hear it, but they just never go. So they, this blew my mind the first time I got this, I, to, to realize that this word of God was sown in their heart, and the devil comes and takes that from them. That doesn't seem like it'd be possible, but it is very much possible. He who received the seed on the stony places, okay, so now we have stony, right? On the stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. What was the persecution from? It was because of the word. Understand that. You watch that play out in the book of Hebrews. I know I'm 
going to be teaching on this, but in the book of Hebrews, it was written by Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. It's not, you know, he didn't sign it, but I believe it was Paul. And it was written to Hebrews, hence the name, okay? Letting the cat out of the bag a little early. But the whole premise was is that these people were facing intense persecution for the word, and what they were wanting to do was, well, we can just kind of go back into Judaism and start sacrificing and doing these things again. And that is why I say, no, the sacrifice is done. Because the ultimate sacrifice has been given. So there's a distinction here, though, because they received the word with joy. It took root in their heart. So they're born again. But because of the persecution for the word, as soon as things get tough, we'll just let it go. Think about end times. Those who take the mark, why do they do it? Things are tough. There's a persecution for the word. You have to make allegiances so people will. What's the next one? Uh, verse 22, now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So now we have thorny. They receive the word, right? Sunk in their heart. Are these people born again? I believe so. But what keeps them from producing fruit, producing a harvest? It says, look at this, the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, it choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Does that sound like anything that we've been talking about over the last few weeks? Mammon. If you'll worship me, I will give you all the things you see here. If you'll bow down before me, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. If you'll do this, then I will do that. Because it makes a bunch of promises that only God can keep. See, the spirit of Antichrist is the spirit of mammon. It's the one and the same. It's this, I've got to go and do this, so I'll get to this God stuff later. People don't give to, to ministries and give to the needy because they're like, well, I need this now. When I have a little bit more, then I'll start to give. Our heart's in the wrong spot. What's the last one? It's the good ground. He who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands. He indeed bears fruit and produces some hundred, some sixty, some thirty. And we've got good soil. But what was the seed that was sowed? The word. Does it ever say anything about money in that? No. So here's what we know. Is that whatever we sow, we will reap. If we are sowing the word, there will be a time of reaping. So if we don't see that harvest immediately, what should we do? Put some stinking fertilizer down. Why do we quit? Well, we don't see the things that we want. Okay, God, I did this. Why aren't you answering my prayers? We quit. We give up. We stop talking to our neighbors, our family members, our loved ones. They'll say, hey, listen, I don't want to hear about this from you anymore. I'm like, well, you better find somebody else to call then because this is all I talk about. And Nebraska football. <laughs> you see, it's, it's like, okay, God, why? That's why these churches today, I don't understand this. They have, there are churches that are trying to get people to start tithing. I want everybody to tithe. The reason I want them to do it is not because it benefits me, it's because it benefits you. I learned this principle at a very young age, that the idea of tithing and giving and receiving and all of this stuff, that it's better to give than to receive. Watching God move in my own life financially and allowing me to do more for the kingdom of God because of it. But they'll, they'll do these things like, okay, here's what we're going to do. If you start tithing today, we're going to give you a 90-day money-back guarantee. You think I'm joking, I am not. And that at the end of those 90 days, 
that if you do not see the windows of heaven opened up and poured out a blessing upon you, we will refund your money. <laughs> we missed the point altogether. This is stuff, this stuff goes on all around the country. Now, here's what I can promise you. The first guy that came up with this idea was very well-intentioned. I'll guarantee it. Because he's just trying to encourage people. He's like, guys, don't be afraid of this. This is a principle from God. What are the other people trying to do? Hey, you know, everybody started giving money. We have a lot more of it. Sound like the TV preachers and stuff that we see? That's, we've missed the point. Is we sow seed. Money can be a seed. It's a seed that we give. It's part of our worship. But, but what we do is so much more important. Because is Jesus ever at one time saying, listen, I need you to give me all your money? He's never once said that. He said, here's all I want from you. This is really simple. I want your heart. Not part of your heart. Not a little bit here, not a little bit there. I don't want you to sit on the table. I want all of it. I want it all. And if he had it all, that would mean that what? We're good soil. And we're producing fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. Well, look at this. Just the next part down, Matthew 13, verse 24. And another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to then go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So we have another sowing and reaping. A good sowing of seed was put down, but the enemy came in and sowed tares. What on earth is a tear? Well, luckily for you, I have a picture. Can you see the difference? There's not much of one. It's not until it's almost harvest time where they begin to produce the fruit that you can see the distinction between them. As they're growing, they look identical. Why didn't they want him to go pull them out? Well, obviously, because you would destroy everything. Why do you think they make Roundup Ready corn? Because if they didn't, and you wanted to kill the weeds with Roundup, what else would you kill? you'd kill the corn. That's not very good planning. You see, these things would grow up right next to it. The seed was planted was good, but there was an enemy out there planting seed as well. Wait, so this sowing and reaping thing also works on behalf of the enemy, doesn't it? What I'm trying to say to you guys is that the principles here, when we talk about these four soils, where do we want to be? Well, we want to be over here. We spend time here. I mean, if we're ever honest, Especially when you're young. You have no money. What are you trying to do? Get more money. And then some preacher stands up there and says, listen, you want more money, I need you to give it to me. And what do you do? Okay. No. See, I, 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 whether a person gives or not makes no difference to me as far as I'm personally concerned. It's all about God because we love him. We see, when we sow, we will reap. When we give to the kingdom, God will take care of us. He says, I meet your needs according to my riches and glory. Those are two different things. We say it as all one word. Um, okay, imagine, if you will, you are the son or daughter of some ancient king. How about Solomon? And he says, hey, don't worry. I'm going to take care of you according to my riches, not your own. Would you ever have a care in the world? 
No. Daddy's got a fat checkbook. He's going to take care of me. And that's literally what God has said to us. I will meet your needs according to my riches, but we can't put our faith in him. We can't trust him. He says, here's what I need from you. I will pour out a blessing upon you, and I need you to bring back what belongs to me. And the reason we don't is because we're fearful. We're scared. We're like, oh, I need this. I've got to pay the cable bill. I've got to pay the light bill. I've got to do whatever I've got to do to meet ends. And, and Jesus is sitting there like, I'm telling you, do this. What we have no problem putting our faith in him for? Salvation. Why is that so easy when we're talking about eternity versus a temporal need on this earth? Because we're not faced with eternity every single day. But when the uh, gas companies call and looking for their money or you get no more gas, that's a problem. I could give you testimony after testimony of people who have, were believing God, they got in a rough spot, and God supernaturally provided for them, either via a check, sometimes it's cash, somebody pays a bill for them, whatever the case may be. I can tell you story after story where somebody was in a bad spot, suddenly a new job appeared and they were making more income or it was a, a better job or another job. Did you realize that it's okay to sweat once in a while? It's, it's not against the commandments of God. What do we want to do? We want to pray to God to meet our needs and go out and check the mailbox, see if there's a check in it. Sometimes God's provision comes through work. But the bottom line is this, is that we do all of these things because we love God. We would never sow a seed financially without a love for God because what's the point we would never go out and speak to somebody about the kingdom of heaven and preach the gospel except for one reason we love them and we don't want to see anybody spend eternity separated from God that's why we do it it's our motivation you see Jesus laid out the model for us that he willingly laid down his life and did everything he could to bring mankind back to the glory of God. The model for you and I is that our life is a living sacrifice, just like Jesus' was. From the moment he was born, he was the sacrificial lamb. You want to get technical, it was way before that. But that was the plan. Our lives laid down as a living sacrifice for him, saying, God, it all belongs to you. And whatever you want to do with it, I will do with it. And then we do that. And we live our lives for him. That's the difference. That's what's so weird and bizarre about this whole thing is that the things of God are the antithesis to the things of the world. We don't hoard, we don't need to. We trust God. Amen?